Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church Podcast. We're happy that you would join us for today's teaching. As a church, we're passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus, no matter who they are or where they are from. If you have any questions about Jesus, the church, or the teaching you're hearing today, please don't hesitate to contact us online at ericksoncovenant.ca. And now, let's listen to this week's teaching. Hey, before I begin, I want to thank Doug for, for preaching last week, for continuing on the Acts story, and we're going to continue in the story today, uh, but thank you, Doug, really appreciated that, and I know many of you did too, because you told me that. I hope you told him that. Any of you who told me that, should tell him that too, so thank you. I love conversion stories. I love stories of people who have gone through some sort of tremendous change. Now, True Confessions, I actually like to read about or hear about stories of, of any kind of change that people have gone through. When they've come from something that they really thought was true or believed was true or just the way things were, and they undergo some kind of change or transformation, I find that very intriguing. So, of course, you expect me, and I, you know, I am most thrilled when someone comes from a place of atheism to faith in Christ or uh, a Muslim to faith in Christ. I'm most thrilled by that. But I am intrigued by people who undergo significant change of some kind. Like maybe they went from you know, caring about one thing to really caring about something else. Or they, or they had this you know, complete shift in their thinking that, that maybe has ramifications in how they, how they consider politics or how they think about a, a particular issue. Or, uh, and even people who have, who, have, who have moved from being Christian to being atheist or, or who have, have changed something significant in their belief structure. I'm intrigued by that. And so uh, I love to read those stories, love to hear those stories. But of course, I am most intrigued, perhaps, or most celebrate those who have been in a place far away from Jesus and have discovered uh, who Jesus is. And to hear their stories, I find them so encouraging. And I just want to say that those stories are right here. I, I don't know, not, maybe not all of you realize that, but many of you have people around you right now who could tell you a great story of how they went from not believing in God at all to following Jesus. Or they, maybe a slow process or maybe like a a lightning bolt moment, they came to understand who Jesus is and they are now following him today. So actually, before we go any further, I just want to encourage you, like find out some of these stories. Next time you're chatting with somebody, maybe you want to have a coffee time, just say to them like, hey, first ask, are you a follower of Jesus? Because not all of us are. And if, if they aren't, don't, you know, we don't, awesome, glad you're here. I'm thrilled you're here. Don't want you to be anywhere else, quite frankly. Um, but those of you who say, yes, I am a follower of Jesus, ask, how did you come to follow Jesus? Like, tell me that story. And then, and then listen to the stories uh, that are right here in our community of, of, of conversion. So I'm fascinated by conversion stories, so I read about them, listen to them, and uh, I find, find them very intriguing. One of the conversion stories that I have really enjoyed, and I know some of you have too, um, is the story of Nabil Qureshi. And, and some of you have read his book, and I'm, I'm going to shamelessly encourage you to read it, promote it. Um, uh, his story, he wrote up, in, it's called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Nabil Qureshi, uh, an incredible guy that, uh, due to the mystery of God, I don't know how these things work, he's, he's an incredible man, comes to faith, doing powerful ministry, and died of stomach cancer just a couple years ago. Young guy. 
But his story of coming to faith is wonderful. I encourage, it, uh, I encourage you to read it, but why don't we listen to a little piece of it? It's a book promotional. I encourage you to read the book, but listen to a little snippet of his story today. If Christianity were true, and it meant you had to give up everything to follow God, would you want to know the truth? I was a mama's boy. I, uh, every time we went out somewhere, if I were scared, I would run up to my mom. Um, I would stay very close to her. If I were sick, I would put my head on her tummy. Um, I was very, very close to my mother. My earliest memories are of my mother every day sitting me next to her and having me put on my skull cap and showing me how to recite the Quran letter by letter. I finished the Quran when I was five years old and by that time I had memorized the last seven chapters so that I could recite them during the five daily prayers. To be raised Muslim in the United States was a point of pride because we believed uh, that we had the truth. In my freshman year of college, my best friend and I had many conversations about faith. And we argued all the time about Islam versus Christianity. But one specific day, he pulled me aside and he said, Nabil, if Christianity were true, and it meant you had to give up everything to follow God, would you want to know the truth? It took a long time before I was able to determine for myself even if I lose everything, it's worth it. And when my parents did find out, it was the most painful day of my life, probably the most painful day of their lives too. And I'll never forget the look in my mother's eye. Her whole life is Islam, just like my life was. And now my whole life is Christ. And there's just no, there's no, um, there's no connection anymore. But to have Christ in my life makes every loss worth it. My hope and my prayer for this book is that everyone who picks it up would draw closer to one another. Muslims by understanding the gospel, Christians by understanding the passion and the love that Muslims have, and ultimately through all of this, so that we can arrive at the truth and at a glory that will be given to God. Well, that's a tiny little snippet of Nabil's story. I just really encourage you to read or, or listen on audio to his story. Uh, very powerful. And uh, as he said, very informative about, uh, about Islam, but just a wonderful story of coming to faith and seeing the, 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 the struggle and, uh, and the, the challenge in that. Uh, there's, it's really something about uh, watching the story of someone who was in, in some real sense against Christ or against Christianity come to, to follow Jesus. And today's story that we're looking at in Acts is, is the premier story of that. It's the story of a man who was very much an enemy of God, an enemy of Christ, who then becomes an emissary of Christ. It's the story of the Apostle Paul. Saul, he was called, of course, and he's the quintessential example of someone going through a dramatic. In fact, his conversion experience is kind of the prototypical, right? We talk about a Damascus Road experience because it typifies this powerful turnaround in someone's life, and it's his story we're going to look at. But 
in many ways, his story is our story. Now, it might not be that dramatic, and the, the particulars are different, but when we look at the story of Paul, the story of Saul coming to know Jesus, it follows a pattern, as it were. And, and, and that's why uh, people down through the centuries have looked at the Apostle Paul, and they've looked at uh, the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus and said, there it is. In many ways, that tells our story, the central story of the good news of Jesus. So that's what we're going to look at today. So if you have a Bible, you can turn in it or look at your phones or just listen along. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 9, the story of Saul's conversion. We're going to see in this story how Jesus turns an enemy into an emissary. Here it is. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Now, we already saw Saul in the book of Acts one time so far. We saw him at the lynching of Stephen. Stephen, this man full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit, who was feeding the poor, got into a confrontation with religious authorities because he was promoting Jesus. And they, in kind of a wild mob, lynched him outside the city. They stoned him to death. And we looked at his story. What a powerful um, expression of witness to Jesus that was. But we saw Saul there. He was there at the stoning of Stephen. He was holding the coats. He was approving of what they did. Well, now we see Saul taking it up a notch. Saul went to the high priest and asked him for letters to synagogues in Damascus. This is in another country, another city. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, which was an early title for this group of Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So get this. The apostle, or Saul, not the apostle Saul yet. (laughs) Saul is so upset about this early group of Christians. They're starting to fill Jerusalem. There's thousands of them meeting now in Jerusalem. Their witness is starting to spread out. He's so upset and so determined to stamp them out that he, he's not part of the official leadership structure. He's part of the group of Pharisees who are always giving Jesus a problem. But he's part of a a really intense, zealous group. But he goes to the authorities and says, give me permission to go and get these people and drag them here. So he is taking out his tirade against Christianity, trying to get it out there, maybe get ahead of the spread of Christianity. Because we know from the persecution, it's been spreading out. So that's what Saul does. Gets permission, he's going to go to Damascus. Well, verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey... Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Just imagine what he's going through during those three days. Your whole life has understood 
the covenant, has understood the law, has understood God in a certain way, and you've been so zealous for that that you have gone on a war path to destroy anything that would get in the way of a true expression of the covenant. Just think about that. You've done everything. He's been killing people and approving of their deaths. Now he's on the war path and discovers in a way he did not expect that the very ones he was fighting against were actually God himself. Imagine how he felt. Blind? In the dark? We, we find out later that he was maybe given a little more information on the road because um, Luke is so concerned that we hear this story of Saul that it gets told to us two more times in the book of Acts. But in this moment, all we know is that Paul is sort of struck down finds out it's Jesus that he's persecuting and is told to go into the city and for three days he's in a state of shock. Doesn't eat, doesn't drink in the dark. We find out in a moment that he's been praying, that he receives a vision. But this is a very intense experience that he's going through where everything he's ever thought was true is being re-scrambled because of this encounter with Jesus. Well, let's keep going in the story. <clears throat> In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord... (laughs) Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to those in Jerusalem who believe in you. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. How would you be feeling at this moment? Yeah. No more visions, Lord, please. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul. (laughs) One of the greatest acts of faith right there. (laughs) Brother Saul. The Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you can see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now that's incredible right there, isn't it? That we would see Jesus reaching out to save and to include and to forgive and to fill a man who had made it his mission to destroy the church. That's incredible grace. But watch how it flows out. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Can you imagine that? The guy who came to Damascus to destroy the church is now leading your Bible study. Like, what were you doing last week? Oh, not much. 
you know? <laughs> the guy who, <laughs> I'm just thinking, I just can imagine there's a stand there staring at him because it's like, this guy came here to round us up and drag us back to Jerusalem and he's saying, come on guys, let's go tell everyone else about Jesus. And apparently he was very effective. All those, verse 21, all those who heard him were astonished and asked, the question we're asking, isn't he the same guy who raised havoc in Jerusalem among all those who call on his name? Isn't he, hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. You know, there was a lot going on in the three days that Paul spent in the dark. Right? Because this is a man who knew the Scripture backwards and forwards. He was a man who knew the covenant promises. He knew the story. He knew exactly, as he understood it, the way things were supposed to go. And then, bam, he's confronted with Jesus on the Damascus Road. And in that period of time, that three days while he's praying, and then subsequently filled with the Spirit and begins to engage the other Christians, it's like God is taking everything he knew and everything's being reframed and reoriented through the reality that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus rose again from the dead. All the covenant promises are being fulfilled and have been fulfilled in Jesus. All the things that God promised would happen, happen through Jesus and are now happening by the Spirit through the church. All these things are being reordered in his mind. But it was all there. He knew the Scripture. And the Holy Spirit coming in and reorienting everything around Jesus enabled them within a few short days to be a powerful witness to Jesus, so much so that they're baffled by it. They, they, they can't withstand his arguments. It's an incredible, uh, incredible thing. Well, after many days had gone by, I don't know, a few weeks, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. <laughs> but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch at, on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. You know, later on in one of Paul's letters, he draws attention to this. He came into Damascus, and, and, and Luke actually uses language. It's like he comes into Damascus, uh, toward Damascus, like a ravenous beast set to destroy, filled with power and indignation. And he's going to set things right, and he's going to destroy those who are hurting the covenant, and he's going to, you know, wreak havoc, and there's this power to him. But when he leaves Damascus, he's let down over the wall in a basket. You know? Don't drop me! It's from, a, from, a, from an image of incredible power to an image of helplessness, actually. An image of, 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 of pride to an image of humility. And right there, in that, just in that opening story, you see the shift already happening in Paul's life and what goes on to be the first of many attempts to kill him. The first of many attempts to heap shame on him or try to shut him down. And over and over again, what Jesus said on the road that day, that I will show him how much he has to suffer for my name, immediately it already starts to happen. And the rest of Saul's life becomes known as Paul. Paul is his Greek name. Saul is his Jewish name. Uh, but he becomes known more popularly as Paul. 
from then on, you see that lived out in his life, a suffering for the name of Jesus as he powerfully witnesses and plants churches and whatnot. But here he is being let down in a basket over the wall. Well, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. Can we just say, yes, we get it. Hello. I don't want him to be part of my group. Can you go to someone else's group? Does he have to be my house church? Can he go to that one? Please. That's what I'd be. Okay. They were not really believing that he was a disciple. This is some kind of a trick, right? But Barnabas, who we also had already introduced to us, he was the guy who took some land and, and sold it and gave the money to the disciples, totally committed to the mission. And we're going to see him go on and, and do great things with Paul. But in this case, he lives up to his name. He's the son of encouragement. That's what Barnabas means. It's like his nickname. He took Paul and he brought him to the apostles. He told them, he vouched for Saul. He told them how Saul was on his journey and he had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, that'd be the Greek-speaking Jews. But they tried to kill him. When the believers heard of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. That's where he's from. It's like, send this boy home. He needs to go reconnect with his family, figure out what's going on. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. What an incredible story, hey? And you can see why, when you read this story, why it's sort of the... the, the, the uh, I don't know, the prototypical conversion story as we see a man who is so set against God, or not against God, but against Jesus, come to discover he was set against God because he'd been trying to destroy the very thing that God was doing. And and it's a beautiful thing. So today, what I'd like us to explore is how God, Jesus, turns enemies into emissaries. And here it's true in this story, but it's true in our story. So first, let's look at how Jesus turns enemies from us from being enemies or turns Saul from being an enemy. Saul, as we already have seen, he's kind of the quintessential enemy, right? Everything about him. I mean, he's even part of the same group that constantly caused Jesus problems. So if you read through the Gospels and you discover the Pharisees, Paul's like the Pharisee of Pharisees. And he calls himself that. He is like impeccable law follower. He knows the scripture. You know, every bit of his life has been ordered around the covenant. And he's given himself fully to that. And, and that's what's brought him to this place of actually being against Jesus. And what he discovers, persecuting Jesus himself, who is God. And there's this amazing sense that God looks around and says, hmm, <laughs> I've given this promise that the Holy Spirit, when he comes... Remember the promise? We've all been going on about in Acts. Holy Spirit comes and, and uh, he's going to you know, fill the church and they're going to be in a witness to me. And they're in Jerusalem and now through persecution, they're in Judea and Samaria. How am I going to bring the good news about Jesus to the whole world? Who would have picked Paul? Would you have picked Saul? Look around and say, who am I going to pick? So what he essentially does, he looks and looks for the most unlikely person, at least in our eyes the person who was causing the most harm, the person who was stirring things up the most, the last person in the world that the church was thinking, we need someone to represent us. And Jesus looks around and says, that guy. 
that's who I want. And steps in, stops him in his tracks, and moves him from being an enemy to being an emissary, from being an enemy to being one of his. And we see that in our own lives. I mean, it's true of us. We can, you can go back a slide. I'll stay on the enemy one for a minute, Derek Cameron. The reality is what, what God does in Saul's life is ultimately the gospel. That's the good news. Because we see in Paul, you know, this really obvious enemy. But the truth is, Paul later on, when he was writing a letter to the Romans, he said this. He said, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were still sinners. While we were still God's enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. This is how Paul captures it in Romans chapter 5. Now, some of us may think, well, I wasn't, I'm not, I wasn't an enemy like Paul was. Fair enough. You probably weren't trying to kill anyone who was trying to follow Jesus. We get that. But what we discover is Paul reflects on his own life, but as he looks around, he realizes, you know, God, God who created the world, who set it up to work, who gave us the gift of life and freedom, and then we rebelled against him. We said, I want to do things my own way. And we deliberately chose, and we do continue to choose to do things that are against God's will, that hurt other people, that disregard the gifts of God. What we're essentially doing is saying, God, I don't want you in my life. I don't want your ways to shape my life. And we can do that in a lot of different ways. And what Paul's saying is, when he reflects on that, he realizes that what has happened is sin has put us in a place where we're actually at enmity with God. We're enemies of God. And that can look like a variety of things, but we're in a position where we're not willing to receive, not willing to accept. And the amazing good news story is that God looks at us, looks at a guy like Paul, and he says, yeah, I'm going to win them over. I'm not going to give up on them. I'm not going to say, well, too bad for them. I'm going to give them everything. You know. And when we're at our very worst, disregarding God's gifts, saying no to His leadership, looking at Jesus and saying, why do I need Him? When we're at our very worst, God shows His very best to us. It's while we were His enemies. It's while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. That's the heart of the Gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. It's, it's what we believe. It's what we, it's what we gather to praise God for. It's what we celebrate. We see it in Paul's life, but we see it in our own life. How God looks at us and says, you know what? I know they're going that way, but I'm going to get in front of them. And, and so that's why people, different people, different stories, they all, those who've come to follow Jesus can tell you about their come to Jesus moment. When they realized Jesus is the one who has sacrificed himself on my behalf. Jesus is the one who stepped in to the place of punishment for me. Jesus is the one who hung on the cross where enemies are hung so that I could be restored to the family of God. That's an amazing good news story. And if that's just where the story ended, we'd all celebrate like, whoa, God took us who were his enemies and made us his friends, made us part of his family, like party time, right? But what we discover as the story goes on, of course, is he he doesn't just leave it there because he turns enemies not only into friends, not only into family, not only forgiving us and filling us with his Holy Spirit and giving us eternal life and welcoming us into freedom, but he also gives us a mission. He also turns us into emissaries. And that's where the story goes. Now, 
what we've come to realize through the story of Saul, but through the whole story of Scripture, is that salvation is never only for us. It is never only for us. It is also always for others. And this is so important for us to get. We see it in the story of Paul, right? In the story of Paul, and, and, and later on, he'll, he'll talk more about that when he retells his own story. But right here, the Lord says to Ananias, when Ananias has, you know, logical objections to this idea, God says, the Lord says, Jesus says, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles, to kings, and to my people, Israel. And that's what Paul, that's what Saul, I keep getting the names confused, I'm talking about the same person. This is what he does. He's called to be, from, from, from being an enemy to immediately being an emissary. And his whole life then is shaped by this responsibility, this commission that he's been given to go and tell. And he becomes, you know, he plants all these churches, all the rest of the book of Acts. I mean, um, the next uh, few chapters are going to look back at Peter again. But then really the whole rest of the story of Acts will shift to Saul, who then is called Paul. And we'll see all the rest of how he goes on these missionary journeys and he's spreading the good news about Jesus and he'll go into one town. And first he'll go to the synagogue and he'll do exactly what he was doing in Damascus. He'll tell people um, who are Jews, who are part of the covenant promises, he'll tell them about their Messiah. And some of them will come to faith and some of them will reject and there'll often be a conflict. And then during the week, he's out there telling people in the marketplace, just average Greek-speaking pagans, about Jesus as well. He's telling Gentiles, he's telling Jews, he's letting everybody know about Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, risen from the dead. And so his whole life is shaped by this mission. He becomes the quintessential emissary. But it's also true of us. When we were called to follow Jesus, he didn't just say, here you go. Here's everything, every benefit, every spiritual blessing in Christ. Here's salvation. Here's forgiveness. Here's freedom. Here's the Holy Spirit. Now just go sit in a corner. Have fun. You know, someday I'll come and get you. You know, he didn't do that. He actually said, what does he say in John? John 15, he said something like, I no longer call you servants. I now call you friends. Because servants have no idea what the boss is doing, but friends do. He said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you to do what? To go and bear fruit. And this calling to himself, consistent all through the story of Scripture, is also a calling to be part of his mission. John, uh, Doug last, I said John, John's, Doug John's, last week hinted that um, your pastor can talk to you about election and predestination and stuff. Thanks, John. Doug John's, why do I say John. But actually, that's kind of fun. I was smiling and thinking, I'm going to talk about that next week. But not really in the way you think. Oh, so there's lots of debate. And if you don't know about it, who cares? But some of you are aware that there can be sometimes conversation within the Christian family about how election works and how predestination works and all that. And I just want to tip my hand and tell you, this is how I see it. What we see all through Scripture is that when people are chosen, they're chosen for a mission. When they're elect, they're elect for the sake of everyone else. So whether you look at even Noah, but when you look in particular at Abram, Abraham, when you look down through the story, but then ultimately arriving at Jesus, and then us, 
Everyone who is chosen to receive blessing and salvation and, and, and God's gifts, all the things we've talked about, that chosenness, that election, is never just for them. It's always so that they can go and tell everyone else. So this is like this is how I put it to disturb my Calvinist friends. I always say, yes, I am elect for the sake of all the non-elect so they can come to follow Jesus too. What I mean is, what we see in Scripture is that the choosing of God's people, the choosing of Jesus, the choosing of us, is never so that it's like, well, we're the chosen few and everyone else can, you know, damn to hell or whatever. It's actually, we are chosen for a mission. We are elect for a purpose. The choosing of Abram, who then became Abraham, was so that through your family, all the families of the world could be blessed. The choosing of the nation of Israel to follow and observe and and be faithful to God was so that they could be a light to the Gentiles. And ultimately, in the coming of Jesus, the one man, he represents Israel. He represents all humanity. He represents all of creation. Stands in, makes the right choice, offers to God the proper worship, the proper praise, the proper sacrifice as a man but also as the Son of God. It's a worthy sacrifice. And so there's this amazing, lots of theology in here, but lots of amazing stuff. And Jesus stands as the one who then does it for the many. And then turns around and includes us in the family by saying, I want you to continue doing what I've done. You've been chosen by me to go out and try to gather all the rest. You've been elect by me so that everyone can come to discover life in Jesus. So this story in some ways, and there's lots of scripture to back this up, shows how the election of Paul being chosen out of enemy ranks to be an emissary for Jesus is actually our story too. We have been chosen out of enemy ranks to be the emissaries of Jesus himself. That's amazing. So much to celebrate, even as we just think about being transferred from enemy to family but to consider that God has gifted us, commissioned us to be part of making that known to the world. Wow. The truth is this is still happening, right? This is the good news. This is the gospel as it goes out. As we celebrate what God has done for us in Jesus, as we include others in that celebration, as we make it known through our friendships and our workplaces, God is continuing, people are continuing to have their Damascus Road moment, continuing to have the light shine, whether it's through a long conversations with a friend, whether it's through different suffering experiences, whether it's through reading and exploration, whether it's through some existential crisis, however it happens, people all over the world are coming to know Jesus. I mean, I'm, I'm very caught by what's happening among uh, the Muslim world and how many people from a Muslim background are coming to know Jesus how Jesus is after them, and it's amazing. The church in Iran is growing. And, and then also to consider how the church in China has just been growing forever now. Like 100 years, it's been just exploding. Out of communist, atheistic China, we see the church growing in incredible ways. God is at work all over. And to hear the stories of how people are coming to know Jesus, moving from enemy to emissary, is truly amazing. You know, I, but I started this um, talk today with um, a little snippet from Nabil, uh, from the Islamic world. I also wanted you to hear another story today. And so I chose one from 
If you've never gone on and watched some of the stories on imetmessiah.com, they're amazing stories. I want to show you one today by a Jewish professor as he came to know Jesus. So take a listen here. I remember having a conversation with my mother, and she was encouraging me to go to bed early so I'd get a good night's sleep. And so I said, Ma, why? Why should I go to bed and get a good night's sleep? She said, so you can get up and be refreshed in the morning and, and do well in school. I said, why do I need to do well in school? She said, so you can go to a good college. I said, why do I need to go to a good college? She said, so you can get a good job. Why do I need to get a good job? So you can have a family and, and, have, and have a house and have th- the, the nice things of life. And I said, well, okay, if I have all those things, then what? She goes, then, then nothing, that's it. I said, is that all there is? Being the only son of a Jewish mother, uh, I was made to feel like I was the center of the universe. It was all about me. And then in the world, when it wasn't about me, it was shocking to me. And, and I wanted it to be about me. I sought the, the, the approval and the affirmation and the confirmation of these things from other people that, in fact, it was about me and that I was the center of the universe. I went to a private school, and we had to study the life of Jesus uh, at that private school. And I, I didn't like Jesus, but I wanted to hear from my own rabbi why we don't believe in Jesus. And he explained to me that he couldn't be the Messiah because when Messiah comes, he'll bring peace. And since Jesus has already come and there is no peace, he could not be the Messiah. And that satisfied me for about seven years. And I was, I was totally satisfied with that answer. It made sense to me. In college, I became a theoretical Marxist. I believed that, uh, that what the world needed was radical social change that instead of people competing against each other uh, in the marketplace, that government would come and, and would create an equal playing field, and even more than that, and create equal outcomes for everyone in the culture. If we could get rid of the competitiveness and, and, the, and the, um, the adversarial relationship that I, that I saw in the, 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 the culture, and we could work towards cooperation, we could create a better world together. And I really wanted to make a better world. That was my, I, I saw this as, as a source of, of significance and purpose in my life, that I could help bring about a better world for, for uh, mankind. The only problem with my convictions uh, about change, social change and making a better world was the, was the problem of the brokenness in people. My own personal brokenness, I saw that. My own selfishness, my own pride. Uh, my own lust, my own greed, all of those things in, in my life. And, and I saw that in other people. I saw it in the world around me. And if, if there was something wrong with us, if there was something wrong with people, then changing social systems wouldn't make any difference. It would just be the same thing over and over again. So in my freshman year of college, uh, I hear a knock on my door. I open the door, and there's a young man there. He looks at me, he goes, hi, my name's Paul. And I'd like, to come, I'd like to talk to you about establishing a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I thought, well, it took me by surprise. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm Jewish. He goes, that's okay, so is he. I said, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I said, uh, come on in. So I invited him in the room. I invited some, some of my Jewish friends from down the hall to come join us. And then he began to explain to us why Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So the questions that I came to college with stayed with me, and I, and I realized if there was no God, there was no hope. Uh, that led me on a, on, on a quest, on a search. And in the process of that search, I came across the, the prophecy in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. And I remember reading it, and the 
thinking to myself, what's Jesus doing in my Bible? I was surprised as I read it that, that this was from the prophet Isaiah, the Jewish prophet. And I said, what's Jesus doing in my Bible? And I began to think, why didn't the rabbi tell me about this? Why didn't he tell me that, that there was a picture of Messiah uh, other than Messiah bringing peace, but a Messiah that was going to suffer and die for us? After college, in order to make extra money, I worked nights and weekends uh, for a kosher caterer in, uh, in Boston. One night, uh, April 30th, 1980, uh, I was at Temple Sinai in Marblehead, Massachusetts. Uh, I was there for a donor dinner, serving a donor dinner. I was asked if I would pack up the truck so everybody else could go home and just I would be left. And I said, fine. So everybody else left. The, the, the ladies uh, had their fundraiser inside the shul, and I was outside uh, with a cup of coffee and a cigarette and just thinking about life. All of a sudden, inside the synagogue, the women started praying. Uh, their prayers began to remind me of my own searching and my own struggle, my own uh, journey that I, that, I, that I was on. And I started thinking about uh, Jewish history, and I started thinking about uh, David, and I started thinking about Jesus. Is Jesus the Messiah? Is, is it really important who the Messiah is? Is, is Jesus the, uh, the Son of God? Is he, is he, is he God? Did he ever say he was God? And couldn't he have just meant that he was close to God and intimate with God? And I said, what difference does that make what the name of God is, as long as we, we, we live a good life? And as I'm thinking these things, I'm walking around the temple parking lot, and I get to the, uh, the end of the parking lot, and I look up, and before me is a gathering of light, and the light forms a figure of a man, and the, and the man is, is all in light, and, 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 there was, and he was behind, he's in front of a cross, not on the cross, but in front of a cross, and it's all brightly illuminated in front of me, about 20 yards, about 20 yards away from me as big as life. And I looked up and I saw the figure and I said, oh my God, it's Jesus Christ. And my hands are shaking and I'm shaking my head on the way home. Did I really see this? Did I really see this? And, and it, it, it scared me so much, I decided to, to try to put it out of my mind. So I spent the next couple of weeks just partying and, and uh, going out to bars and just trying to forget about what, what had happened. And I did this for, for a couple of weeks. And I, uh, of getting drunk and, and trying to forget. I uh, woke up one morning, I was living at home at the time, and, and I woke up in the morning and, and uh, I was getting my orange juice in, in the kitchen and my mother looks at me and says, Rich, what are you running from? So I came to realize that I wasn't the center of the universe, that, that, that God was, that it wasn't about me, it was about Him. Uh, and it was about me investing my life in, in, in his purposes that he had for me. And that gave me such a feeling of meaning and purpose in my life that it was, it was beyond anything that I, 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 could have, I could have dreamt for. I never thought I'd get the answers. I never thought that, that those were the kinds of things that there were answers to. But now I realize that, that there's a God and that he loves me and that that love sets me free to love and serve others, love and serve him. Today I am uh, I'm married to my beautiful wife Michelle who happens to be Italian. I thought it was more important uh, to, to marry a girl that shared my faith in, in Jesus than it was to marry a Jewish girl. Uh, we have three uh, wonderful boys, uh, uh, Joshua 27, Micah 26, and Zach 23. They all uh, have come in their place in their life where they have uh, asked Jesus to be uh, their Messiah and Lord. 
and uh, they are walking with him, and so we're very proud of them. I Presently, I'm teaching as, as a uh, professor in a graduate school in New York City and, uh, and really enjoy, delight in being able to share my experience and my journey and my life uh, with these young people uh, in the context of a learning environment. What a great story. It's awesome. And you can even see in his story uh, little elements, the same similar pieces that we saw in Saul's own story. And I know as you expand out and hear other stories, you also see similar things, like the role, for example, that another believer plays in someone's life. You'll hear that in Nabil's story. You heard that in his story, how significant it is that as the body of Christ, as we take up our role as emissaries, how God uses us to help others come to know him. Very, very significant. Well, what do we do with that? How do we, how do we land this? I think there's a call to action. I think there's two of them for us today. And the first one is this. Who is the enemy? I invite you to consider that for your own life. Maybe it's who is my enemy. It could be personal. It could be someone that has been standing against your faith, who's been making it difficult for you to follow Jesus. It could be someone that um, there's a lot of tension there. I, I don't know what it is. But it also could be cultural. It could be someone that you hear about. Maybe a podcaster or a, a writer or someone who's always in the news. Or you know, maybe, it's a, maybe it is a Richard Dawkins or a, or a... What's the name of that boy king that rules North Vietnam? Him. North Korea, sorry. That guy. Kim Jong. Thank you. It could be him. It could be someone that you think... If there's, if there's someone I can think qualifies as an enemy of the gospel, it's that person. And when you identify that person, here's my ask for you. Here's my call to action for you. Write down their name on a slip of paper and commit to pray for them for 30 days. Very concrete action here. Pray for the enemy. Because here's the thing. Most of those people that you will have identified, a podcaster, a writer, a a political figure, someone with with social influence, isn't that exactly what... Isn't that exactly what Jesus did when he identified Saul and said, that's who I want? So wouldn't it be wonderful if we, as the church, identifying as we discern by the Holy Spirit, there's a person who is so set against the good news about Jesus. How amazing would it be if they were to turn and follow Jesus? What kind of influence would that create? How many people, how many other people would discover who Jesus is if they were to turn? And let that motivate your prayer. So we'll come up with different names. Maybe some of them will be the same and they'll get double, triple prayer. Who knows? But identify someone. I encourage you to do it today at the latest tomorrow. Write their name down and commit to pray that they would have their Damascus Road experience. That Jesus would give them a vision. That Jesus would knock them down to their knees. That he would confront them, lovingly confront them with who they are so they can receive the good news. It's the most loving confrontation that we could imagine. But pray for them. Pray for that enemy. That they would be turned into an emissary. So that's the first call to action. The second one is that it's a, a, a little less concrete. It's more about how we see ourselves. And that is to embrace your emissary status. Embrace it. And maybe part of it is to process a little bit with Jesus, maybe in prayer, maybe in a journal, maybe with a friend. 
In what ways have you thought of what God has done for you in Jesus? In, in what ways have you embraced salvation in Christ but kept it as sort of a private gift? In what ways have you, have you maybe not embraced your emissary status? Where you've thought of what God has done for you in Christ and you celebrate that and you worship Him for that and you're grateful for that, but somehow it's been contained. You haven't fully embraced the fact that you have been saved for a mission. You've been brought from enemy into the family of God so that you can be an emissary for Him. And let the Holy Spirit help you process what it means that you are His emissary. That you are commissioned by Him. Because I think as we change the way we understand who we are in Christ, the responsibility He's given us, Friends, there are men and women and children today who don't know Jesus, who don't know His love, who don't know His forgiveness, who actually need you and I to be an emissary for them. As we see in the life of Saul, Nabil, I don't know the name of the the Jewish professor, they never said it, did they? But as we see people like that and others around us, we discover that it's as people come to follow Jesus and take seriously what it means to be an emissary, that literally tens, hundreds, even thousands of lives are affected by that. So, we need to embrace our emissary status. I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to go to communion. Let's pray. Jesus, we stand humble and amazed by your love for us. That even while we were your enemies, you died in our place. It's very rare, as Paul said in Romans, that anyone would die for a righteous person, even though maybe possibly someone would die for a good person. But God, you demonstrated your own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. We celebrate that. And we embrace our status as your emissaries, as your ambassadors, chosen to go and bear fruit so that many more people can discover life in you. Jesus, there's perhaps no better way to celebrate that than to come to the communion table today. And so as we come, we celebrate you who loved us as enemies, who adopted us into your family and has now sent us as your emissaries into the world. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey, whether you're finding Jesus for the first time or you have been following him for years. Do you know someone who would be encouraged by what you heard today? We invite you to share this podcast so they can be encouraged too. For more information or to ask more questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for the Erickson Covenant Church.